Hello, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. Today we bring you the third of three recordings from our Tragic Martyrs live event that happened at the Dogstar in Brixton earlier this month. Next week we'll have a Stand Up Tragedy special produced by Bryony Hawkins, which will have clips and interviews with the performers from Tragic Martyrs. Some of the acts have visual elements, but we think that you're still going to enjoy them. But if you want the full SUT audio and visual experience, come to our Tragic History Night on Friday, the 16th of May. Hello, everybody! Excellent stuff, excellent stuff. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. And what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. Uh, It's a variety night, so you're going to see some comedy, you're going to see some spoken word, you're going to see some storytelling, you're going to see all sorts of wonderful things. I don't even want to spoil it by revealing what you're going to see. What we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we make people cry until they laugh and laugh until until they cry. So... The content tonight may be serious, it may may very well be sad, it may also make you laugh, so be prepared to go through the whole gamut of emotions tonight, uh, and be prepared to go to some dark places, but also be prepared to have some light shined into those dark places, because that's what tonight is all about, it's about tragic martyrs, that's our theme tonight. Welcome back to Act 3, hello? Oh, some noise, that's good. So uh, yeah, by this point of the evening I've got very drunk. And uh, all of the order of the performers is changed all around. So there's, this could be lots of hijinks in this act. Uh, so our first performer, I'm very pleased to welcome to our stage. Having problems with the mic stand, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be professional here, but it's, it's sinking into the sea. So our first performer in this act is the Story Beast. Now, I'm very pleased to welcome him to our stage because last month, if you were here for Tragic Heroes, we had the beta males, but there was one thing missing in the beta males, and that was the Story Beast. So you can follow him at the Story Beast on Twitter. Uh, He is in the beta males, who you can find uh, on the beta males. Yeah, the beta males.com. That's surprisingly obvious. So. Put your hands together for John Henry Fall, the Story Beast! In Harlan Hayrot, Cope King Rotka, having pesky problem, and Mincerous Monster defense, Grendel Gongen, which crept into the Harlan Dictonicta and strangled the warriors into bed. So, from straight. Tell the Gitland, Rotka, call him on a meaty armor. He honey bats a stranger. Beowulf. Who sounded a lot like Ray Winstone. And so, while everyone good and pissed up, Beowulf lay him like he waiting for the menster. And as in wakey waiting, he lay, who should crept into the harbor but Grendel Gongan? And he thinks to himself, hmm. Meet the bag and just a glance. But he think on up and up streak a beowulf and rustle the monster down. Rustle down. Gilada! Gilada, sir! Gilada! Rip the arm of the Grendel! Ah! Meander! Dickheads! And there was much rejoicing in the harbor. Eh, what is the nick and that the nick and nick that after that and nick that after that? When everyone gone and pissed up, who should come here and into the hall of a massive troll hug Grendel motor, who strangle men in the motor warriors of Bayovia like what? We're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> so Bayov reading out the Farici, put to find a massive mensin motor. And as he reading out, he came to a forest. Dead, he bereft of leaf. And in the forest, a certain pool, rippling which weird and currents. And stranger beasties. So, Beowulf stripped a bollocky buff, and he cast out, but to find a maximum mensin motor. And as he swam, 
What should come here in the darkness but massive trolls like Grendelmother? Who drag him on you down? He down! He... <laughs> Scream about him, was he down? And as everything got black, what should Bale see glinting in the darkness? But in giant Kniffen from Warrior Snack form. And he hung in, and he swung in, and he Thundercats who? Bits ahead of. It was amazing. And there was much rejoicing in the harbor. Many a yard and lot, you know. It's a long time lot. It's a slav, you know. It's a slav. Eh. Not slav, yeah. We not have them no more because it's racist. But there's a Slav, you know. And a Slav going to the barrow. And in the barrow is gold and joyous. And he's sleepy, scaly, scar. <laughs> but a Slav done not. <laughs> so he crept into the harbor And he take a joyless cup. And what do you fuck think could happen? Squat, squat, squat! Big fucking dragon come out! Burn down the hells! Whoosh! Burn down the felder! Whoosh! Burn down the shooter! Whoosh! Oh, there's more gay blades dragon! Whoosh! And by a wolf, he all like, what? I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> but he reading out for the face a massive reptile. High on a hill, is it? High on hill, stood Wiglaf, Comitatus, kinfolk, best mate inside the gave a bale. And he see a dreadlord swimming and slashing for dragonflesh. And he see a dreadlord fall. So, hefting, hafting in hand, he ridden out. He swimming, and he hefting, and he... Dragon exploded. It was amazing. And Wiggle, I feel like I've done that. But Beowulf, he saw the grief. And with his final breath, he got he apologies. Even make you feel sad. Seeing his attention, nicked the self-confidence. But you see, the winner takes it all. Those in the Beowulf, a man of much song, good king, honey badger string, he total windstone. Thus end by a wolf. Thank you. And you've got to imagine what the effect of it. Oh, I do speak English, by the way. <laughs> I'm just uh, come back from Anglo Saxon times to bamboozle you. Like, uh, like Hugh Jackman and Cajun Leopold. But far more dashing. Niche reference there. Okay, uh, Jean Reno in Les Visiteurs. But far more hairy. Uh, no, that's it, that's it. Doctor Who? No, never. Um, yeah. Easy, easy. Oh, mm. Okay, uh, you could imagine what the effect of hearing, of hearing uh, Beowulf must have been on a load of burly Anglo-Saxon warriors back in the day. But you know, they'd be there in their mead hall... Drinking their mead on their mead benches, which is where you drink mead. And, and then a scop would come in, a ceremonial storyteller, and he'd say, hey guys, I'm going to tell you a story. It's about a, it's about a load of burly guys in a hall, just like you. And they're in there drinking their mead, just like you, on their mead benches, which is where you drink your mead, just like you. And then a monster happens. No. That's so why they're all like, no. 
Not the, not in the hall. That's where we are. She's very much the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of, but the calls were coming from inside the house. No, not the house. That's where we live. Um, but actually, uh, just, just on the subject of martyrs, briefly, I'm going to retroactively make this bit the theme. Um... <laughs> Uh, Beowulf, actually, uh, we, don't, we don't know too much about it. We know that the, the text, as we have it, comes from the 9th century. And we can say with some certainty uh, that the author was some monks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and the thing about the monks is that, is that they've got a different religion to the one Beowulf has. Beowulf is part of a sort of Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, believes in Votan, believes in well, killing people, will make me happy, will break me better in the afterlife, die with lots of gold... Uh, and in battle, hopefully. Uh, but the monks writing it down, they're all Christian. And so they know that Beowulf is going to hell, which is very unfortunate for Beowulf and, and very unfortunate for the monks because the thing is, they wrote that story down and they, they think Beowulf's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> so they don't want him, they don't want him to die. And so he basically becomes a kind of... Uh, of a structured storyteller. We know, we know he's great, we know he kills loads of monsters and dragons, but ultimately he's going to hell. And let that be a, a lesson to all, that no matter how cool you are, you, you will go to hell. <laughs> to, to buck up your ideas. Yes. Um, I, so that's retroactively making that fit the theme. Um, I do actually, but I do have something which is, which is about the theme tonight. I do actually have, a, I've got a favourite martyr uh, I, I come from the island of Jersey. That's exactly what it deserved. <laughs> from the island of Jersey. Uh, anyone, anyone know what the patron saint of Jersey is? Come on. Bergerac. <laughs> he died for our sins, you know, John Nettles. <laughs> he died proselytizing in Jersey in the middle of the Royal Square. And we cut him up and burnt him in a wicker man, which is what we do. Um, no, uh, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier. St. Helier? No? That's our town centre. If you've seen Bergerac, you will be intimately familiar with St. Helier. Um, best thing about Bergerac, while we're on the subject, while we're on the subject of Bergerac, let me just disabuse a few of you. Of just, I think it's the same for anyone who lives in the Oxfordshire towns where they set midsummer. But if John Nettles goes in a building... Uh, in St. Helier, in, in Bergerac, he can very easily come out on the other side of the island. Now, none of you who have never been to Jersey and who care, evidently, by the sound of that chair, um, won't be able to notice that. But when I, when I watch Bergerac on, on watch, 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoons, check it out, um, he, he, uh, you have to, uh, you notice, he, I just notice, I just notice, no, he's, he's, gone in that, he's gone in that door, he's come on the other side of the island, and so Bergerac becomes a kind of, becomes like a, another episode, it becomes like an episode of Doctor Who, sort of, where are these doors opening in time? How are they allowing his egress through space? There's some sort of wormhole in that jeweler shop, and he's come out on the other side of the island. Ooh, ooh, Bergerac, you don't care. Um... <laughs> Uh, no, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier, and St. Helier's, um, St. Helier's uh, crest is a, a blue shield with two axes on it. And that's a little clue as to precisely how he got martyred. We don't, again, we don't really... He's a, bit of, he's a legendary figure, really. Uh, we, don't, we don't know that much about him. He, uh, he's a 6th century saint from Belgium, uh, weirdly enough. And he came to the island, and he went out... And he lived on a rock for, for 20 years. And it's rather, I've always found that rather mysterious choice to make as a career. Instead of, well, you know, sort of you've gone out and been a comedian. Yeah, I didn't go out and live on a rock for 20 years. Uh, around, surrounded by very cold water. Very cold water. Uh, we don't actually know that much about him. We know he was baptised 150 years before he was born. Uh, if we're to believe both of the medieval hagiographies on his life. He was baptised 150 years before he was born while dying still a young man 200 years later. Uh, which doesn't quite work, maths fans. Um, uh, and St. Helier, St. Helier uh, used to alert the, uh, the primitive 
peoples of Jersey uh, from pirates coming from the coast. So he'd be out on the rock in the middle of the sea and he'd, he'd see the pirates coming into land and he'd light a lantern. And the Jersey people would all be, know to run away, run away from the pirates that were coming to ravage, ravage their crops and, and probably people as well. Uh, and, and, but one day, uh, St. Helier was, uh, was caught by the pirates and they beheaded him. With, with a couple of axes, just to be sure. Two axes, not just one axe. Two axes to make sure he was dead. But then he got up. <laughs> and he got up and he carried his head over to, and did, did a little jig and, uh, and, and, and preached the gospel and did whatever you know, saints do. And it uh, was generally miraculous. Uh, and uh, yeah, that is the martyrdom of St. Helier. Uh, I've got a story here about, about St. Helier, because uh, uh, I, I, I seriously don't know how he ended up on that rock, so I, I've, I've guessed somewhat at his motives here for this story. So this is a story called St. Helier's Passions. Every morning, St. Helier would awake with a good, solid scream. It was the same scream every morning. He would scream as he remembered where he was and why he was there. On a rock, on top of a slightly larger rock, off an even bigger rock, out in the middle of the ocean. He'd been there for years. Below him stormed the raging surf, boiling itself into foam and spray. Occasionally, he'd be woken by the icy cold spray bursting over his body as he lay on the cold, lonesome rock he called his bed. Occasionally, but also for years. But it was all worth it, said Helly, I suppose. Wasn't it? Admittedly, it was a, there was a little screaming to be done every morning, but St. Helier supposed it was only the regular amount of screaming anyone had to do. <laughs> Certainly anyone who lived on it on a rock out in the middle of the ocean. Then again, he'd, he'd never met another one. No, St. Helier decided. It was definitely a proportionate amount of screaming. Totally proportionate to the alternative. <laughs> Girls. Women, ladies, St. Helier muttered, they're all right in moderation. As I'm sure you can guess, the moderate amount for St. Helier was none at all, if he could help it, which he did, but by living on a rock. It was only a few months after saying goodbye to Belgium and society and dry land that St. Helier heard the voices, soft at first, but then... More terrifyingly, softer still. Voices sad as the surf and softer than foam. Female voices that sang in high, sad songs and warbled through his rock. And then the awful, warm faces that said things like, How are you today, St. Helier? Or, Lovely weather we're having, eh, St. Helier? Or, Would you mind showing me the way to France, St. Helier? I've been awfully silly and got lost. Go away, please. St. Helio would say. So the voices would leave, and St. Helio would have to dash off and plunge himself into the coldest and most uncomfortable pool he could find. I mean, the cheek of it, that these soft and female things should ask him such impertinent questions. And him on his rock, too. He hadn't left dry land and all its fleshy disturbances behind to be spoken to like that. That's what rocks were for. But sooner or later, and it was always too soon for St. Helier, the singing, legless, fish-tailed voices would be back, back to singing him a nice ditty about a fun new way to knit seaweed or tell him what the dogfish were really talking about, which was rarely scintillating, only to wave a polite goodbye and wish St. Helier a good evening. Soon after, St. Helier would wake to awful, fleshy screams, need to give himself a jolly good plunge. One day, he mumbled, as he made his rock really, really uncomfortable. One day, they'll make me a saint for this. Saint, Saint Helier. <laughs> he liked the sound of that. 
Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Um, ooh, a lot of press. Uh, I'm going to leave you on. My, I'm going to leave you on one last thing. Uh, does anyone know all the kings? Anyone? Anyone know all the kings? Anyone know the poem for knowing all the kings? No, you know the poem. It goes, Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee. No one. No one else go to public school. <laughs> Seriously, come on, make them hate you. Make them hate you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's very, it's very, it's a very good one. It's a very good one. Uh, it's, uh, it's very good. It lets you put history in order. It's very useful. Uh, it goes, it goes. Uh, Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Harry's four, five, six. Then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad, Mary, Bessie, James the vain, Charlie, Charlie, James again. William and Mary, and a Gloria for George's William and Victoria. Yes, Edward seven next, and then George the fifth in nineteen ten. Ned the eighth soon abdicated. Then George the sixth was coronated. After which Elizabeth and Charlie three upon her death. Then William and Kate arrive. They reign well while they're alive. But Harry nine was cleared of all wrongdoing. And then we get Paul and Paul again. And then a Paul and Paul the fourth and five times Paul, Paul six and seven, eight, nine, ten, and Paul eleven. Worst of men who stabbed dots just because they were there. <laughs> and, and was deposed by Paul, his heir. Next, Charlie four, Chantel, Clarice, Bessie three, Paul, Paul, and Reese. Ned the ninth reigned well enough if you'll ignore that war and stuff. <laughs> Henry VIII rose from the dead. Bad news for wifey Seven's head. <laughs> then things start getting rather vague upon the coming of the plague. We know Reese too reigned safe and hunkered down inside his little bunker. One Paul follows next and then. The reigning of the shadow men. Giggling Gog with Leather Jack, the parasite and fighting pack, the queen whose name we dare not speak, the king whose eyes made strong men weak, the empress made of all our fears, the demon monarch reigned for years, the fool, the hierophant, the grey! Trixie Flixie Stephen Ray. <laughs> Last, Arthur comes to green the land. With Britain's darkest hour at hand, he burnt the alien ships on high. Turns to his barrow, there to lie. Then England of its kings did bore. There's one more Paul, and then no more. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for letting me bore you with stories of Jersey. Have a very good night, ladies and gentlemen. The Story Beast, everybody! So, it gets very confusing. It's a bit like a poem about the kings of England and queens of England. Right, where are we now? We are here. Okay, so our next performer is going to be doing something very different. So prepare yourself for a difference, for a change in tone. Uh, you can find her on Twitter, at Jiffa Benson. Because uh, that's her name, Jiffa Benson. So put your hands together for Jiffa Benson! Thanks, Dave. Hello. Yeah, it is. I am going to do something very different. I'm going to do some poems for you. Um, if I can get this mic. Right. Hello. Good. You're still alive after that beasted. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I don't have any poems about my mother, thank God. Um, but I was looking, I was looking through my poems and thinking, you know, what fits the theme? And quite a few of them do. Or oh, I'm going to um, crowbar them into it. Anyway, 
Um, I'm going to start with one called Idotritis, and um, it came about because I went to see an exhibition called Dirt. Do you remember that, the Wellcome Trust? Anyway, and it, it occurred to me that the word detritus could well be a Greek god's name. And this, this particular Greek god, you will hear from his tone, feels that he's a bit of a martyr and he's been overlooked and he's not really happy about it. So this is I detritus. I detritus, god of mud, blood and bullet casings. Eternally underfoot, I won't take no for an answer. There's every reason why you should have heard of me. I am your forebear and your progeny. When twilight covers the hills like cinders, I sift scree soft to talc and moats, crunch crispy leaves to litter, and whip myself together in eddies of surface soil. Then I go out on the hunt. At the dust at the dust heaps of grazing road, I keep my feral eye on brick makers, leathered like parrots' tongues, who dance a jig to smashing shovels and pour libation to the stuff of inception and termination. I saw St. Pancras Church raised to the ground and in its place a cathedral built in praise of nothing. Sacraments of dust, pigeon crap, and the souls of men trying to squeeze through a needle's eye, all held together by my static cling. In the pristine privacy of her bedroom, Esmeralda Padua, somewhere between her promise and her prime, dry heaves cigarette butts, carpet fibers, and shredded letters from unsuitable lovers. She eyes the meat of me, this strange fur ball in her hand, vows to use white sheets and towels from now on just so that she can say, I can't raise hope in a handful of crud. Things just don't work that way. I sweep into a derelict shop in Houston. On top of 20 rusty luckers and three ditched water canisters, a gust of Richard dust declares the wings of flies, time bleached chamois, plumes of pollen, and a Labrador guide dog's pelt. Down in the basement, my long lost symphony sighs and furls tendrils of its fading notes while dust mites drape their maxilla in lint and spiderweb set on the Sisyphean task of rolling dust bunnies up the mildewed stairs. Time was when I could scrape the soot right off the mugs of chimney sweeps stuck in smokestacks. Rat catchers, careless with their droppings, used to heed my wanton cry and wanton hue and cry and call right back. Washerwomen gave up grunge. Carpenters hot-carried sawdust from the wrong side of the Thames, belching rich pickings of miasma. I thought I was building a raucous dream. It was a facsimile. Folks don't discard what they treasure, it seems. Now, Archibald Coker scrapes the gasping earth to bring on the dirt. Puffin Billy picks the threadbare hide of museum academics. Ramkalawan spoon-feeds me the chaff of Golden Virginia, offers up his dead colleagues in only five pints of ashes. In Parliament, the gentleman usher of the black rod, scavenging for fingernails like a mudlark, finds only the odd fish scale. As Big Ben clamours for attention in the clock tower on the hour, I ask the strangers in the gallery, if God made dirt, what can it hurt? In the rank and file of deities, though I might be, Zeus, Mars and Venus have long lost their sheen. When the sun bloats to a red giant and the plastic bags melted and cockroaches all burnt to us crisp, I, detritus, only shall remain. Yours truly. Thanks. Okay, um, well, it could be argued, well, I'm good to argue, that um, jazz players could be classed as martyrs. Certainly, um, you know, in <laughs> certainly in their lifestyle. And, you know, in pursuit of 
um, the thing that makes jazz. Anyway, um, in this particular poem, which is called The Counterplayer Gazes In and Lives to Play the Tale, it's a jazz, it's a, it's a jazz man of some kind, and there's a bit of politics in there, there's a bit of suffering in there, there's a bit of um, slavery in there. Um, when I wrote it, I just thought, what are all the things that go into making jazz or went into making jazz? And I came up with these. It's not, it's a bit of a strange poem, but here we go. The counterplayer gazes in and lives to play the tale. One, on the cliff face of this wet indigo, he is the man who tied water. Two, a trumpet blares the prince is in a hurry to dance on the street. Three, sometimes it sounds like the, booth, the boom of the earth stretching and yawning. Sometimes it's as erudite as a tabler. Most times it's as if he's about to regurgitate a star. Four, when I die, turn no corner, bend no curve, take me straight to Agoko. Five, what kind of food is a song? Six. He'll see you in that space between finger and pluck, between the decay of sound and the priest who tells you these palm oil plantations have been a thousand years in the making. Seven. With spoilt embouchure, I carry a sputtering flame in this house of mirrors, rip the mother of all sorrows into the sky. Eight. He spits stories of the he spits stories of the mammy water coils of serpents around her neck. Nine. I'll tell you of Iroko and Baobab, of a bracelet made of an elephant's tusk, of cotton in my ears and blood gurgling in my throat. Ten. What is the meaning of a red baritone sax on the five spot at midnight? Eleven. Kokuvi has covered his eyes with his hands and is using his jaw to see. Oh, just close my program. Not very clever. Um, so, the next poem I think probably does fit in with, certainly fits in with a bit of a, the tragedy theme, anyway. Um, and um, I wrote it because um, somebody who was very close to me took their own life and I found them. And um, when I came across this thing called the yoctogram, which is what I sort of contemplate in this poem, yoctogram is the smallest designated measure of weight that you can have. Um, and basically a yoctogram is um, a billionth of a billionth of a millionth of a gram. So it's really something that um, it's very hard to imagine. And I try to, you know, I try to get my head around it and this poem came out as well as trying to get the, my head around the other thing that happened. Okay, it's called the yoctogram weighs in. I can hear the sweat in his laugh dissolve like a small alka as it crumbles down its own gravitational well. And I wonder how many to make Atlas's knees buckle, how many more to fit on the head of a pin. That 6,000 ton sequoia that toppled in the forest, how many yoctos did its minuscule seed heave? An ant's load at three times its own weight would crack these nanotubes. This mote of dust in my eye is boulder size as I ponder the yoctogram tipping point of the inevitable avalanche. What is true of apples and earth's core is also the tiniest margin of error that hefts a single straw. The quantum physician tells me when a man is burnt completely, the chemicals left amount to just two pounds. All things we think of as weightless 
would take countless yoktos to gain the heave and traction of bulk, a sun swallowed by its own shadow, silver flecking through a feather, my tears sieved of all their salt. Okay. Um. Thanks. <laughs> okay. The next couple of poems are a bit more cheerful. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, there was a lot of laughter before, so, you know, it, it had to be a counterpoint to all that. Um, so, um, yeah, yes. Um, one could say I'm a martyr to fashion. Well, no, I'm not really a martyr. I got asked in the break and, you know, recorded saying, what would you die for? Nothing, really, nothing. <laughs> but I have killed my feet with high heels and you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I like wearing corsets. Um, I haven't worn one for a while, but, um, yeah, to wear a corset, you really have to be a martyr to not breathing. But after a while, you do, you do learn to sort of... Fl- you kind of learn to breathe with it. It's weird. You have to try it yourself. And then you don't notice you've got it on because you've got used to it. And then when you go to bed, when you take it off, it's still like you've got it on. So it's, it's quite weird. And, um, and the thing about wearing a corset is you never feel unsupported. It's a bit like a good friend. It will support you. It's got your back. That's what it's got. Anyway, I, I got to... I, I liked wearing corsets so much and wondered why. And I thought, what would a corset say if it could speak? And this is what I came up, came up with. It's called truss. My eyelids are open wide as I lie here in the gloom, holding my breath as her skin rubs the satin of my spine and the wind of Crete billows in my stays. I want to sheath her torso in the clenched cuddle of a snake, lick sprung steel onto spongy belly, measure her breath in shallow snatches. She bends to my will, I feed on her musk and sweat, trussing her wiles to mold her heat, clutch flesh from sag and spill. I dream in sine waves of wasp waist bound and boned, busk meant to bust on ladies who tight lace, ladies who bind rib in bone, who relish the sting of my tears scored in welts down their backs. They know that it's a cinch, taming nature into art, inch by inch by inch. That's what they would say. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do one more. And this is, this is I, think, I think she can be described as a martyr. She was a real-life woman. Um, her name was Saki Bartman. Anybody have heard of her, Saki Bartman? No? Okay. Um, very famous case. Um, they, she was known as the Hottentop Venus. And um, basically, she was a South African woman from... Cape Town, and she belonged to what used to be called the Hottentots, but they're now called the Koi Koi. And they are distinguished. They're, they're basically, um, um, what do you call them? Those people who don't have homes, they roam. What do you call them? Nomads, yeah. <laughs> um, in Southern Africa. And um, so it kind of makes sense that the women have these stores of fat in their bottoms. And they are really, really big bottoms. I mean, you know, you can put barrel on their bottoms. And anyway, um, Saki, um, in particular, got brought over, got tricked by an English ship's doctor and got brought over to Europe. This was about the 17th century. And she was displayed in circuses in Paris and London, a bit like the elephant man would have been. And um, said to be an example of why black people were inferior, because, you know, um, she, she looked animalistic. Um, but it, in a campaign led by Nelson Mandela um, back in the early 2000s, her remains were 
brought back to South Africa and she was given a proper burial. She's actually quite a famous case. If you just put in Hotchendorf Venus in Google, reams and reams of stuff comes up, lots of links, and you see the pictures. So, um, yeah, and I like bums. I like, yeah. <laughs> Um, I like I, I like looking at them. I, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's not martyry. Anyway, <laughs> she she was a bit of a martyr in that respect, and and she had a big bum. And um, although I'm not Nigerian, I did live in Nigeria for a while, and in Nigeria, um, they rather like their women much more rounded, shall we say, not more meat on them. And especially if you have a really proper bottom, they say you have bottom power. So I call this bottom power. So anyway, a backside floats inside the dark side of a history pickled in formaldehyde. This wasn't a Damien Hurst or the slaking of knowledge thirst of one-eyed men leading blind fools and grasping for straws in the genetic pool. This was a museum in Gay Paris and here was young Saki, the ultimate other whose derriere was the denier cree eclipsing all dimensions of what a pair of buttocks dared be. She was caught up in the scramble for African booty and shipped across the straits of incredulity. Branded freak, sideshow curiosity, baby's back had way too much front refracted in the sweaty gaze of Eurocentricity. It was exuberant and protuberant. It undulated around the sinuous figure of eight. Her hips rolled like green across the hills of the veld. It was an arsenal of flesh and fodder for fetish. They all came to relish the drama playing out on the curvature of her spine. And can it funny, they muttered. A caper pass as bold as, gra- as bold as brass, they guessed. Steetopegus, gluteus maximus, heaven help us, it takes no prisoners, they hollered. Lordy, Lord, Lord, her highly surely must have taken out a deposit with the Almighty, they heard. What an untidy pudendous ear what? Let's call it Venus. The show was over. There was no love lost here, save for that of one-eyed men, rotting for notions of an inferior posterior in the funnel between her thighs. Saki loses self in the arse end of a bottle, dying to resurrect her, her eyes. But then again, I see you, baby, shaking that ass, shaking that ass, shaking that ass fast, whipping up a frenzy of peach-shaped fecundity, tail feather perched optimistically high on your hips, switching, locking down the rhythm of some mix-a-lot fancy and rump-shaking, tush-wagging, butt-jiggling, bumper-pulling, caboose-stacking, money-making, bad-ass-kicking, hip-sways and dips. And then you ask, did God break the mold shaping Beyonce's round mound, forming Kylie's bite-sized hindquarters, delivering the broadside that is J-Lo's backside? God-given is reason and ample hemispherical features. They distinguish us from all other living creatures. They are ridiculous and sublime. They have been vilified and eroticized in turn. They are the mount of all desire, but it's hardly the seat of all wisdom. If bum cracks are the new cleavage and mother nature major average, get your fucking ass down to Brazil for some nip and tuck leverage. Saki's ass was everything like the sun. It was big, it was bold, it was a celestial body rising to contour South Africa's coast. It was a ledge to stand on and gaze into the face of heaven's host. Thank you very much, thank you.
So, uh, our last performer of the night, this is uh, Alice Bell, whose surname I so spectacularly forgot earlier on. Uh, she, you can, this is all very confusing because everything's in the wrong place, but you can find her online, oh Jesus, at alicerosebell.wordpress.com. Uh, she writes for the New Left Project uh, and for The Guardian, uh, but don't hold that against her. So put your hands together for Alice Bell! Hi, um, uh, I was going to start with a bit of audience participation that involved a bit of hating on the Daily Mail, because that, that's always a really easy start, I find, um, especially for those of us who work in science journalism. Um, but then I met someone in the interval who said that they used to work at the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> But I think, I think we should just work through that kind of social awkwardness. <laughs> no. Well, you know. It's not a big hating on the Daily Mail. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> I'll start. I'm going to talk to you about... Uh, so I work in science it's journalism. Not me, by the way. Uh, um, I'm gonna, I work in science journalism. I'm going to talk about scientists and their persecution complex and how this is just a bit fucked up and really just makes me really bored and it's really annoying and they just need to get over themselves. And this is a picture of one of a, a scientist that I really admire, uh, but also really, really fucks me off. Um, and this is, does anyone know who this is? Oh, I'm standing in front of him. Yeah, this might not work. <laughs> it's not Craig. I do also really, he really, really annoys me, Dave Venter. But uh, I, Craig Venter, but I don't really admire him, so... Oh, no, this is... Um... Isaac Newton? Oh, God. Isaac Newton was such a fucking cock. Um, right? Uh, no, this is, this is Professor David Nutt. And what I want you to do is... To... Right, so you might have heard of David Nutt. Um, and what I want you to do is... This is the persecuted scientist, and I want you all to, you know, impersonate the persecuted scientist. You can impersonate a different persecuted scientist if you want to, but I think we should go with the David Nutt look, which is the kind of eyes sort of like slightly frowning, but kind of a bit hurt, but also really angry, and a kind of like, kind of sneer, but also again sort of sensitivity and kind of you've, you've been in pain. Um, to give you a bit of background to help you get into character for the David Nutt face. Um, so he used to be a government advisor on uh, drugs policy. His research is, he's a neurologist and he researches the effects of drugs. And he said that particular drugs were safe. And the government went, yeah, but like drugs policy isn't just what the scientists say. It's like lots of other things. And he's like, okay, that's all right. Um, but here's some science. And he, he's, all, he's all keen and enthusiastic with his research. And he turns up in, in Whitehall and he's like, hey, science. And they go, yeah, but, you know, drugs policy is a bit more complicated. He's like, but I've got some more science. Yay, science. And, and, and they're like, yeah, but, but the Daily Mail. Uh, and then he goes, but yay, science. And then they go, but, but the Daily Mail. Yay, science. Daily Mail. Science. Daily Mail. Science. You're sacked. <laughs> which led to the slightly uh, painful hashtag that a lot of science journalists used for months and months and months, which was nutsack. Um, you can still go back and trace this. So he, he left and he made a big fuss about it and he made a big thing about how he, was, uh, he wasn't listened to by the government and how all their ideology just was used to trump his science and he's become the poster boy for evidence-based policy. Now, I agree with a lot. I think he does a lot of good scientific research. I think the drugs policy is more complicated than just what he feeds into, but what he feeds us with his evidence we should listen to, uh, you know, we should, we should listen to people like him, and it, it was kind of terrible what happened to him, um, but I don't think he needs to elevate it to some big deal about this, to the extent that he was writing in Nature this year, and he said that his, uh, the rejection of his science was equivalent to the Pope uh, rejecting Galileo. <laughs> And now this brings us to the icon of science's persecution complex, which is Galileo. Now, there were lots of things that happened around the scientific revolution where things that had previously been associated with the church got transferred onto the scientific community. And one of the things that the scientific community kind of stupidly took from the church was this, this idea of the martyr. Um, that you know Jesus had died and been on the cross, and they needed some kind of icon to do that for, to replace that person, and they chose Galileo. And off the back of that has bred so much bollocks. Um, so there's this sort of stuff like, like uh, unhelpful comments 
from Galileo, because Galileo, he, um, from, see, I'm doing it now, he thinks he's Galileo. David Nutt, David Nutt, you're not, David Nutt is not Galileo, he's just a grumpy neurologist. Um, you might have remembered, so there's other th- examples of this, it's not just him. You might have remembered a few months ago, Tesco's for Halloween started selling mental patients costumes, as if this was a joke and really funny that kids might dress up as mental patients. Um, and so Mind and several other mental health charities did a big campaign to complain about that. They had lots of signatures online and they got lots of people who, well, lots of people just like, spontaneously started doing this as selfies of, I'm a mental health patient, I'm, you know, don't look like this. This is what a mental health patient looks like. Way before we had the no makeup selfies and all the ridiculousness of that, we had the mental health patient selfies. Um, and Tesco apologised, realised what they were doing was just ridiculous. This is the 21st century, took down the thing. The Royal Society of Chemistry then realised this isn't the first stand up that has featured the Royal Society of Chemistry press office. There's several people who make an entire career out of taking the piss out of them. Um, <laughs> the Royal Society of Chemistry press office then realised uh, that there was a mad scientist costume and kicked up a huge fuss where they went, This is atrocious. Um, you are, we are the same as the mental health patients. And you see, this was my reaction, this kind of laughter, but the Royal Society of Chemistry was just indignant and it was an example of the huge social divide between science and society and how much society hated them and how everyone ignored um, the the scientists of what they would give to society and how great society was it led to a lot of selfies from chemists which really broke the mold of our and helped diversify what chemists looked like because there were loads of pictures of white men in lab coats <laughs> if you do like i mean if you look at there are lots of, of women and people of colour and people who wear brown lab coats or no lab coats at all in science. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is actually quite true, and it, it, it wasn't very helpful. And there were many things that were just really, really wrong with it. One of the things they led on was the idea that, that science should be associated with such violent imagery. And the Royal Society of Chemistry was really angry about the idea that Tesco's was suggesting that science was violent. I hate to break it to you chemists, you know, people who help make bombs and stuff, um, but science is quite violent, and they maybe should, if they're taking all these selfies, they could maybe look at themselves in the process and think about quite how many people in science are involved in industries of war and things that can be quite violent and appreciate that. And if they don't like it, change it. Or if they think that what they're doing is good, stand up for it, but at least be aware of it. Um, There is a, a... it's kind of a bl- blind spot sometimes about science, looking at itself. I was at a science event recently um, for kids, and the Royal Academy of Engineering, I love engineers so much, the Royal Academy of Engineering had these engineers save life badges. They're really big. It's true, engineers do save life. I mean it when I say I love engineers. Engineering is awesome. And they had these beautiful engineers save lives badges. Hey, kids, be an engineer, save lives. And it was on a table with sponsored by BAE Systems. <laughs> without any, not, I would say without irony, but without any self-awareness either. So first of all, Royal Society of Chemistry, look at yourselves. If you think you're violent, maybe if the public think you're violent, maybe they have good reason to. Maybe they understand you better than you understand yourself. Secondly, there was this idea that, um, that they were persecuted in a similar way to the way in which people treat mental health mental health issues. It's not. It really isn't. Um, I noticed that for all that the Royal Society of Chemistry kept adding mind in this to try and get them to encourage other people on Twitter to be part of this campaign, the mind Twitter account was a little bit more concerned with benefits rules changing and how that was affecting mental health, uh, people with mental health problems. Um, it was, you know, they need to think about how rich science is and how really quite respected it is. It's one of the many cases where science really should just check its privilege. Um, but luckily, actually, bits of science do check their privilege, and so I've got some data on this. I was going to show you some slides, but, you know, I can't be bothered with it, and you can look it up if you want online. Parts of science do check its privilege regularly, um, and they do it scientifically, so they do it with numbers, and they do it regularly every few years. In fact, they audit their privilege in quite complicated uh, ways, and several different bodies do it, so you can uh, compare the privilege of science in the UK to America or Russia. I don't actually, I don't know what the data is in Russia, but certainly in France or Germany. Um, and it comes out, the most recent data that came out last month is that in the UK, 90% of the UK population think that scientists are trustworthy and, you know, pretty good people. 90%. That is incredibly high for a trust rating for any profession. It's math. Way higher than the Daily Mail journalists. <laughs> way higher than the Guardian journalists. And way, way higher than the left-wing journalists running some kind of weird co- blogging co-op. Trust me. Um, <laughs> 
So they, uh, you know, this, and in fact, I think it's actually dangerous, this level of trust. And when you see groups like Cadrilla, who are behind a lot of the fracking, saying there were some leaked um, emails between DEC, the Department for Energy, and Cadrilla that came out through a Greenpeace thing a couple of months ago, where Cadrilla was going, it's great, we've discovered that the, the, the UK people really trust scientists, so we're going to get scientists to say all our stuff for us. And if that's the case, then I think it's kind of behooves science to maybe encourage people not to trust them so much, or think, get the public to think about where they put their trust and ask questions about it. Um, another thing that this sort of, this sort of, I mean, there are, there are differences within science. This whole 90% thing about science is a bit blunt. There are some bits of science that are more persecuted than others. Uh, we shouldn't think of science as all being equal. It's a very complicated body. Um, for example, this week, we've had Boris Johnson in Imperial College launching, launching a new biomedicine project saying how great biomedical science is for London and for the economy and how much he loves science. And, and there was all this applauding. The new scientists were very excited because Boris Johnson said he likes reading new scientists. Meanwhile... Public Health England are preparing data on how many people are dying because of air quality in London and how much research we have into that, which keeps getting told to the mayor and he keeps ignoring it. You know, there are some ways in which, you know, but people like David Nutt don't get listened to. For all that he, has, he can get headlines and get listened to in some positions, he doesn't in others. They may get a lot of money for some areas, but we're just hearing that 125 scientists, well, uh, staff of which many will be scientists at Q are about to be made unemployed because what they do is not seen as valuable to the people who currently um, would fund them. You know, there are different ways in which uh, science, you know, science works in different ways and we need to remember there are different things within that. But this general idea that, that science is not trusted enough by the public and is not liked enough by politicians and we all just must improve how much we, we love science and that they, they are somehow persecuted by us, it breeds a lot of crap. This Galileo myth particularly breeds a lot of crap. Between people who like to argue about science on the internet, there's this thing called the Galileo gambit, which is the idea that if you are vilified enough and if people say that you're wrong enough, that that means you're truer, that somehow through, through pain comes truth, which is really fucked up. Um, <laughs> So there's this thing, you'll, you'll see it recognisably um, within things like homeopaths. If you keep like, homeopaths get really bullied by scientists on the internet, but they somehow draw some kind of belief that they're right from it. Uh, climate sceptics do it too. There's a whole body in Australia that are quite comical. Um, I slightly feel sorry for them, though, because they do also get bullied, although they, they are peddling a lot of crap, so maybe you shouldn't feel sorry for them, called the Galileo Movement, and they're climate sceptics, and they believe that, that we have just been suffered this big illusion that climate change isn't happening. And they, they draw a lot of their sort of sense of truthiness from the fact that they've somehow been told that they're wrong. Um, but this, this kind of... This persecution complex, so it can breed crap like that if you're not aware to it. You need to at least be able to unpick it. But I think it hurts science too because there's this idea that through pain comes truth. I don't think that's necessarily true. And a lot of scientists will tell you that they, have, they work ridiculously long hours. Being a junior scientist in particular is very, very tough. I mean, I, I laugh about people like David not having a lot of privilege. He, he earns quite a lot of money. He has a very secure job. Um, but if you're a junior scientist, you, you often don't, actually. The conditions are quite shit. And um, you can't be expected to do all sorts of like, really long hours. And this is one of the reasons why women drop out in their 20s quite regularly. A lot, it's, a lot of men suffer from this too, that they just go, fuck it, I can't be asked for this bollocks and leave. Or they just suffer through a shitty job. But you notice it because women drop out, so it's something that you can count. Um, like this idea that, you know, that, that, that pain gives you truth. Um, sometimes cuddles give you truth. I found truth in cuddles. Or just... Being able to have hobbies outside your work can sometimes mean you're a better worker. Like there, is a, there should be a diversity of scientists. And if we stick to this idea that you have to suffer for your job, then we're not going to have that. And so I think it hurts science too. Um, so there's another vision of Galileo and the Galileo myth, which I would end on, which I will recommend to you all, which comes from Bertolt Brecht. Uh, he was a great playwright of the mid-20th century and he had a lovely play called Life of Galileo. And he rewrote this after the war in the blazing light of Hiroshima, thinking very differently about scientists. He'd always seen science as hope and wonder and great, and that Galileo was this great martyr. And then he thought, actually, maybe Galileo was probably a bit of a shit as well. And for all that he was good and powerful, maybe he'd been used by people. And he, wrote, he rewrote it to see someone who had been heavily funded by the military and was using all his great ideas he just gave to the military to go and kill people as well as while he's just sort of looking up at the skies if he's innocent about it all who was really horrible to women um, and who didn't really think about the politics and the the complexity of his work and so you have the story of Galileo at the very end Galileo and he's gone through and he's been tortured by the the, the church until he's lied and said no I don't believe this stuff just to give them the story that the church wanted but Galileo didn't really believe in as a scientist 
And this old student comes and goes, you know, you've just sold out, you've just lied, you just, because you were tortured, you're not my hero anymore. Pity the, 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 the I think, he, yeah, he says, pity the land that has no heroes. And uh, Galileo goes, pity the land that is in need of heroes. Welcome to the gutter, brother in science. And I think that's a much better view. I'd much rather have my scientists in the gutter than on a cross. And I'd much rather be in the gutter with them. So that's my, my line to end on. Welcome to the gutter, brothers of science. Welcome to the gutter. That is a great way to end the night on Martyrs. What I do at the end of stand-up tragedy is I try to engender some kind of catharsis through the medium of sing-alongs. Which is good, because we can uh, give them a run for their money downstairs with their Frankie Knuckles. Uh, So, um, we've got three choices of sing-alongs, because of martyrs being quite a sort of obscure uh, theme. So, you can either sing along with... uh, (laughs) Personal Jesus or losing my religion or hurt in the style of Johnny Cash. Which one? Which was okay, so personal Okay. Alright. Hands up if you want personal Jesus that nobody was shouting out for. It's okay. That's good. I I, I like that song too. Uh, okay. Uh, hands up if you want losing my religion. People confident that they know the words to that because it's been on, uh, uh, you know, comic relief every year. Right. Uh, and hands up if you want hurt. Oh, maths. Um, half, do you think that was more for her? I think that was more for her. I'm asking half because I know that he loves hurt and he's the sound guy, so he deserves the. Have we not? That's my fault. Don't worry. It's okay. I'm a, I'm a martyr of a terrible organisation because I've been on holiday. So we're going to do Hurt because we've got the words for that and we've got the music. Are people going to be able to cope with that? I don't even know what that is. You don't know what that is? No. Well, you're going to get an education now, sir. Fuck yeah. This is a song written by the Nine Inch Nails that was covered by Johnny Cash when he was nearly dying. If I could believe that you didn't know who Johnny Cash would be, I would cry. Uh, But I I know that you do. Uh, So yes, uh, he sung it when he was kind of dying. Uh, It kind of is, kind of is a bit appropriate to martyrs, isn't it? We decided vaguely. It was mostly about what people would know, but clearly not everybody knows hurt as much as we thought. But let's try it. Shall we try it half? We can always cut off in the middle. This has been described like assembly with a uh, slightly mad RE teacher, I think, the, uh, the reviewers said of me. But I find that a little bit problematic because uh, I, like, uh, I don't like problem... I don't like the word mad being used in a derogatory sense as somebody who is a bit mad. Right. Shall we get that music going, Harv? I hurt myself today See if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing is real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away You could have it all. I am fire. 
better than Bowie last month. Uh, is it, I think it's, is it coming in now or not? I'll wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair full of broken thoughts I cannot repair beneath the stains of time the feelings disappear You are someone else And I'm still right here What have I become? My sweetest friend Should we have the, the end theme now, Harv? Yeah, I know, but we've run out of words. Sometimes things come to an abrupt ending. That's what tragedy is all about. So you can find Stand Up Tragedy online at standuptragedy.co.uk. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. You can find us on Facebook with Stand Up Tragedy. We're on a po- we got a podcast. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio app. Tell all your friends to listen to those and to come to our nights because that's always great. That's me singing behind myself. That's always a bit postmodern. The next night is Tragic History. It's on Friday, the 16th of May at the Hackney Attic. It's got Rob Alton. It's got Ben Target. It's got Bridie Lee Kennedy, and it's got so much more. You've been a great bunch of martyrs, bunch of witnesses tonight. And now it's time to go as I'm singing over myself. Thank you very much. Give yourselves a round of applause for your fantastic singing.